Well, good morning. I hope you all are doing well. If we don't know one another, uh, my name's Andrew Bondre. I'm the family ministries pastor here at Crossroads and excited to be here with you guys today. Um, now, I don't know if you all are aware of this or not, but apparently there's something coming up in November, like an election or something. Yeah, everybody pumped about election season. Okay, we got, we got at least one person excited for election season. Uh, the reality is this, this cycle comes up every four years right here in the U.S. And a lot of us have a love-hate relationship with it. Maybe we hate the, the smear campaigns that take place for a couple of months leading up, but, but we love the opportunity to be part of doing one of two things. Either one, seeing change come about that we think needs to be made, or two, Two, to have the opportunity to see continued progress that we think needs to continue. And so we all, regardless of where we are on the political spectrum, have the opportunity to participate in this every four years. And I bet there are people in this room that are all over the place. And so I just want to go ahead and disarm you really quick. I'm not getting ready to tell you who to vote for this year. There's no like text the word vote to 812-8588. No, none of that is happening today to help you with the process. But, but I think that thinking about this process and this cycle that we have is helpful as we look back in Jesus's day and see what it was like for them, specifically looking at this passage today. You see, this posture of saying only four more years or four more years of this awesome was not something that they really shared in the ancient world. The reality is, is that if there was going to be a change in government, it typically took place in one of three ways. Either one, the king or emperor died and was replaced by a successor that he had chosen or that they had set up ahead of time. Or, or two, there was like internal conflict and these were always exciting and the, the king would be killed or taken over that way and someone else would take over his government. Or, or three, the third way this could happen is a conflict conquering kingdom, another kingdom, another king could come in and wipe out the government and start a new one there. Well, when Jesus came on the scene for, for the people of Israel, for the Jewish people um, and Jesus's people, it had been a long time that they had been waiting for the reestablishment of their kingdom. In fact, it had been 600 years that they had been waiting to, to have someone from the family of David on the throne. And this was significant because in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, God had promised David that there would be one on the throne from his family forever. This was something that was commonly known among the people, and yet it had been 600 years since they had had any kind of sovereign ruler over the nation that was actually from the line of David. They had been um, seen, overseen by the Babylonians or the Assyrians or all these other people, and yet they were waiting for their true king. 600 years of waiting. No, only four more years or just four more years and we can see change happen. No, 600 years of wondering when and how the government would turn around, when and how God would send a king to rescue them. 
Now, this is important for us to remember as we read through the Gospels at any point to see Jesus coming on the scene, to understand what was going on in the world around him. But it's particularly important as we jump into this passage today. Today we're going to be in the book of John chapter 12 verses 12 through 36 and as we walk through this passage we're going to ask four questions about this passage. First we're going to ask the question what does this passage say about who Jesus is? All right after we move from there we're going to ask the question okay so this is who Jesus is in light of who Jesus is what has Jesus done or what does Jesus do in this passage? The third question is shaped by that second question. In light of what Jesus has done, who are we? And then finally, what do we do in light of who we are because of what Christ has done? That builds all the way down to asking the question, what are we to do as the people of God today? Now, last week, uh, Phil closed out his message by looking at John 12 verses 9 through 11 and seeing that there was this growing plot to see Lazarus killed because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, many Jewish people went to follow him instead of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And so they began to decide that this was the time Jesus was going to die. So that's the, the framework for this passage today. And we jump into John chapter 12, verse 12, where we read this. It says, The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Now, just two weeks ago, Phil let us know that this festival that they're getting ready to celebrate is actually the Passover. And the Passover was a really big deal for the Jewish people. In fact, Josephus, who was a first century Jewish historian, said that about 30 years after Jesus lived, there were 2.7 million people who had come to Jerusalem, just Jews alone who came to celebrate this great festival. Now, any other year, I probably would have referred to a certain festival that we celebrate around here on the, if you're looking at the map, it's on the left side of the map on Franklin Street, but trying to be sensitive to our friends at the West Campus who are still mourning the loss of the first week of October, so I won't mention the, the fall festival by name, okay? Um, okay, mess that one up, but anyway, so you get the picture here. There's this great crowd gathering around. It's like the fall festival on steroids. It's a really big deal. And these crowd, this crowd begins to hear about what Jesus has done and they begin to crowd around and here's what we see them do in verse 13. It goes on to tell us that they took palm branches and went out to meet him saying, Hosanna, which means literally save now. Come save me. But, but by this point, it had become a, a term of, of praise or acclamation. It's saying, I see you as one who can save. You are one who's worthy of praise. He goes on in the next line to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's a quotation from Psalm 118, verse 26. And whenever it says, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, that's a technical term that is referring to the coming of the Messiah or the end times prophet who is going to turn things around for the people of Israel. And if this crowd's expectations aren't clear enough yet, just look at the last line in that verse. It says, blessed is the king of Israel. 
They see Jesus coming and they think, finally, after 600 years of waiting, the king has come to deliver us. Could this be the one to set us free? Could this be the one to overthrow the Romans? Well, um, John goes on to record this in verse 14. It says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it as it is written. And then he quotes from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. It says, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Now, if you go back to Zechariah chapter 9, it goes on to say this in verse 10. At first, it does talk about him being lowly and riding on a donkey. And then it goes on in verse 10 to say, he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. So here we see this put together with what was said in verse 13. And it begins to show us the character or the nature of Jesus's reign as king. What kind of king is he going to be? And then it goes on to say in verse 16, it says, At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified, and we'll talk more about what it means for Jesus to be glorified here in a little bit. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Here we see that the the crowd begins to be a little bit confused. They don't fully understand, including the disciples, what is truly happening as Jesus rides in on this donkey. They recognize that, that he is this coming king, but they don't understand this picture of him as a humble king. They don't understand this until later on. But as we look at this, we see that Jesus comes in riding on this donkey as a humble servant king. He comes in as one that's different than what is expected. And this kind of gives us the answer to that first question. We're asking, who is Jesus? And in this passage, we see that Jesus is a servant king. In fact, if we were to look at this idea from even the Old Testament, we would see that he is the servant king, the one who has come to rescue his people. Now, one of the cool things there in Zechariah 9, whenever it talks about this king coming, riding on a donkey, gentle and lowly, this idea of this humble king coming is that there in verse 10, I don't know if you caught it or not, but it said that he would proclaim peace to the nations. It wasn't just that he was coming to reign over the people of Israel, but this was a global kingdom that was being established. We see this nation's plural idea, and it shows the nature of God's kingdom in Zechariah 9 and verse, or chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. It tells us that this kingdom is going to be one of peace, and it's going to be universal in scope. It goes on to tell us in verses 17 through 19, it says, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. I mean, wouldn't you continue to spread the word if you saw a man raised from the dead? It says, Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The religious leaders there spoke better than they knew. The reality was is that the whole world was going after him because he was a king, not just for the people of Israel, but a king for the nations. 
putting this in light of what we know from the Zechariah 9 passages and what we see throughout the scripture, we see right here that God is pointing to his heart for the nations, not just for one nation. He's concerned not just with these people that have been waiting 600 years, but he's concerned with letting the whole world know that the true king, Jesus, has come to bring peace. You know, this is one of my favorite things about being a part of the team here at Crossroads is the commitment that our outreach team has to engaging those who have not heard the gospel with the good news of Jesus. I don't know if you guys realize this or not, but there are 3 billion people, 40% of the world's population that live in areas that have little to no access to the gospel. And by that, we mean it's less than 2% Christian, which means that the churches there can't really sustain themselves. And this is a focus point for us as a church as we seek to engage the nations. It's one of the reasons why I love giving here because I know that the impact goes beyond what happens here in this building or online through our ministry or even just here in Evansville or in the U.S. It goes to the nations. It helps plant churches in Japan. It helps plant churches in India. It helps with loving kids and families well in Kenya. It helps spread the good news of Jesus and the good news that a king has come to bring peace all around the world. And while the, the Pharisees may not have fully grasped what they were saying when they said that the whole world has gone after them, John makes it clear in the very next verse. Just look at verse 20. It says, now there were some Greeks, so non-Jews, people from the nations among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. So it took a little bit of a game of telephone, but eventually these two guys go to Jesus and say, hey, these Greek people want to see you. And this leads to an incredibly powerful statement in light of all that has come in the book of John. Look at verse 23. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Now in isolation, that probably doesn't mean a whole lot. But if we think about what's happened to this point in the book of John, we see that the idea that the hour has come is a really big idea. Back in John chapter 2, Jesus hasn't done anything public yet. And his mom comes to him at a wedding and says, hey, this family needs your help. You need to, to do something about them running out of wine. And Jesus responds to her by saying, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter 4, Jesus is interacting with a Samaritan woman by a well in verses 21 and in 23. She's asking this question, hey, so uh, us Samaritans, we worship on this mountain. The, the Jews say you're supposed to be worship on, worshiping on this other mountain. Where is the right place to worship? And Jesus responds by saying, hey, there is a time coming. Literally, there's an hour coming when you won't worship on this mountain or that mountain. And it goes on in verse 23 to say that there's a time coming, an hour coming when people will worship in spirit and in truth. But the hour is not here yet. In John chapter seven and John chapter eight, as Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, you see this moment where the religious leaders get furious with him and they're ready to see him killed. But it says that no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. 
And yet now as these Greeks come to Jesus, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This glory, this kingship seemed to go together, but the enthronement of Jesus, the way that he would go about taking his place on the throne is shocking. Let's see what it tells us in verse 24 as we continue. It says, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So if I have one little seed of grain and I just take it and I put it in my kitchen in a jar and set it on the counter, it's never going to do what it's supposed to do, which is actually produce many more seeds. The only way I can see that happen is if I put it in the ground and it dies and it actually brings about new life and produces many seeds above and beyond that. And Jesus says, hey, that is what I'm about to do in my life. He says, my death will actually result in my glory. And as a result, it will produce life for many. He says, in fact, it's for anyone. And that includes you and I today. We have access to this life that Jesus brought about by his death. This brings us to that next question. If who Jesus is, is a servant king, then what does Jesus do in light of who he is? And I think right here we see a couple of things. First, we see that as a servant king, he laid down his life for many. We see that as a servant king, he served. Do you notice that idea from when the early church had that that letter, Philippians, that we looked at earlier? Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, it has that powerful statement there talking about how Jesus, even though he was in nature God, he had that opportunity to hold on to that. He didn't take advantage of that, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very form of a servant and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This servant king chose to serve. And he laid down his life. He actually died so that we could experience life. Who Jesus is shapes what Jesus does. And what Jesus has done and continues to do shapes who we are. And we see this in verses 25 and 26. It goes on to say, anyone who loves their life will lose it. While anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now, whenever it talks about loving and hating life there, that can be a little bit confusing. I mean, it's not too uncommon to hear people talk about how much they hate their life, right? How miserable it is. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, hey, go be miserable. It makes life a whole lot better, okay? He's saying something very different. He's not talking about love and hate on an absolute scale. He's talking about it through this this Semitic uh, idiom that they would use to talk about preference, It's about a fundamental preference. And he's saying, hey, if your fundamental preference is for yourself and your self-gratification, you're not going to experience true life. But if you're actually willing to set that aside, if you will actually hate your own self, and by that he's talking about this idea of hating, this idea of just being about self-gratification, of always fulfilling your own desires, you will actually keep it for eternal life. Loving oneself is holding on to one's life selfishly and it only leads to death. 
In God's economy, you see, it is only by spending our lives that we truly attain life. Jesus talks about this idea in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, whenever he gives this picture, he says to his disciples, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must take up their cross and follow me. They must choose to die to themselves to experience new life. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Paul is talking about the experience of uh, believers, and he says this. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So if we've received grace from God, should we go on sinning so that his grace would become even greater? He says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we then live in it any longer? How can we continue to live to gratify ourselves? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This death to self is an invitation to a gift. It's an invitation to die to sin, to die to just gratifying ourselves continually and find true life in Jesus, to find true satisfaction in Jesus. You know, if you haven't experienced this or or you haven't taken your next step towards this, next weekend is an opportunity for us to participate in what Paul talks about there in chapter 6. This baptism weekend we have next weekend is a picture of this experience Jesus is talking about where we die to ourselves, we die to our own interests, we die to our sin, and God makes us a new creation and gives us a new life to live. And like Jesus says here, this is a life that we are able to keep. The one who loves their life refuses to battle their sin because it satisfies a hunger we have within us, even if it just satisfies it for a moment. Even if after we splurge, we just find ourselves empty afterwards, at least it feels good for a moment, right? You know, one of the greatest truths I've had to grasp again and again throughout my life is the idea that because God is good, I don't have to look to satisfaction elsewhere. Because God is good, as I focus upon him and who he is and what he's done, I don't have to look to my wife to be the one who satisfies everything. I don't have to look to my son to fulfill anything in me. I don't have to look to my job or anything else, but I can actually live and love others out of the fullness and the satisfaction that I've found in who God is. But the one who who loves their life looks no different than the rest of the world because they're satisfied by the very same thing everyone else is. The one who hates their life is those that turn from self-gratification and turn to trust Jesus to satisfy them. You see, one of the things we need to see about Jesus as king is this, that a different kind of king, if he truly is a servant king, a king that is different than our worldly conception of a king, then it requires that we live as a different kind of citizen. A different kind of king calls for a different kind of citizen, a citizen that turns from sin, a citizen that recognizes that if I want true life, I have to come to Jesus. The way of Jesus is not always easy, but it is glorious. So if what Jesus has done in light of who he is shapes who we are, then then who are we? 
Well, I think in light of this passage, we see that we are citizens in his kingdom who have been freed to live as humble servants, just like our king lived. That's that idea again from Philippians 2, 5 through 11, where they point to Jesus and say, hey, this is something that you have access to now. And Jesus goes on in verse 27 to express that this doesn't mean that it's all easy or feels good as he faces the cross that awaits him. He says, now my soul is troubled. That word for troubled there talks about anxiety, agitation, or or even a revulsion. As Jesus sees the cross coming, he sees the pain that awaits him and it troubles him. And what shall I say? He says, Father, save me from this hour. Now the NIV puts a question mark there and most translations do, but in light of Jesus being greatly troubled, I think we could see that as an honest question. Father, save me from this hour. But Jesus doesn't stay there. He says, no, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. This is the reason I was sent here. So Father, glorify your name. Now, the one thing I want us to see here is that angst and faith, this feeling of angst, this feeling of maybe even pressure that we may think is just this doubt eating us up inside, angst and faith are not enemies. In fact, as we pursue God and his plan, we can be honest with him about what we are feeling in the midst of it. And it can be an expression of our faith to continue to choose to continue to follow him, even when we feel that angst as an expression of our faith. And the father responds there in verses 28 through 30. It says, then a voice from heaven or came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said the voice, it was for your benefit, not for mine. Here we see again the greatness of Jesus as king. Whenever Jesus right here again is taking and maybe defining what it looks like to be king in this passage, we see that the father confirms it, which just shows us an even greater uh, picture of the service that Jesus offered in laying down his life. He truly was God in flesh, and yet he laid down his life for us. It's an incredible picture of service. He goes on to say this in verses 31 through 33. He says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, talking about Satan, will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the destruction of the prince of this world, the destruction of Satan, this exaltation of the son of man where all people are drawn to him. These are things that that will happen in their fullness at the end time. But here we see that right now in Jesus' coming, in Jesus' death on the cross, his exaltation, his resurrection, we see that the end times have begun with the coming of Jesus. Now, we will taste it in its fullness one day in the future. But right now, as Jesus went to the cross, he began to destroy the works of Satan and bring about a new opportunity for life. 
This picture of him being exalted is one that is kind of shocking. His enthronement will come as he is lifted up. And this act will draw all people to himself. So what's he talking about? This exaltation, this lifting himself up. Verse 33 tells us that this lifting up, it says he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So 600 years of waiting. And in a shocking turn, this guy that you've recognized as king comes along and says that his enthronement would include a journey to the cross. The king who spoke spoke the world into existence now says, hey, I'm humbling myself to the point of dying, even having death on the cross. And the confusion from the crowd was clear. Just look at verse 34. It says, the crowd spoke up. We've heard from the law of Moses that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? But Jesus is equally clear. Says then Jesus told them, You are going to have light just a little longer. Walk while you have light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he finished speaking this, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Jesus' days are numbered, but his kingdom will remain. Believe in the light, he says, so that you may become children of light. Trusting in Jesus means that we become children of light, which means that we not only learn what to do from Jesus, but we also learn how to do it. The idea of children of light means that we are children who take on the characteristics of the, the one who is the light of the world. So in light of who we are as citizens of this servant king, because he's laid down his life for us, because he is a servant king, the question is, what do we do? I think we learn a couple of things here. We learn that we actually die to ourself and our self-interest. We learn that we live in this new life, eternal life that Jesus offers beginning now. We learn that we actually put others' interests before our own because that's what our servant king did. And we learn that we shine the light of Jesus and we shine it on to Jesus. What does this look like? Well, it means that if we are in a relationship with someone else, if we're maybe married or just in a relationship with someone else, we actually seek to love and serve them rather than just waiting for them to love and serve us. We try to outdo them in the way that we love and serve because that's the way that Jesus has loved us. It means doing the same thing as we seek to love our neighbors well. Maybe today you realize, oh wait, I haven't talked to that one neighbor since the stay-at-home order was lifted. They were really struggling with something. Maybe I put aside my Sunday afternoon nap and choose to engage with them instead to put their interests above my own. It changes the way that we work with others because whenever we're at work, it's not just about proving ourselves because we've already been approved of by Christ. We are freed to love and serve the people around us in order to show just how great our God is. Now, I started out this message by talking about the upcoming election. And I promised I wouldn't tell you who to vote for, and I promise I will keep that um, promise there. If you want to know who to vote for, my encouragement to you is to do your research and wrestle through it with the Lord. Actually take this as a thing to pray through as a person. 
The reality is is I don't think we can read through this passage today and see the clear picture that this is who you do or who you don't vote for. But you know what I think is clear in this passage? I think this passage is clear about the people we are called to be in the middle of an election season. See, election seasons can be nasty. One of the things that grieves my heart sometimes is seeing believers online who are just going at one another because of differing political positions. And when that happens, we see very little of Jesus. So I think my encouragement to us in light of this passage is ask the question, how should we live in the middle of an election season? I think we should be people who reflect our servant king. So here's maybe just a simple thing for us to wrestle through. Whenever people look at us, what do they see? Do they see a donkey, an elephant, or a servant king? Who do they see whenever they see us? Are we children of light? Are we children of the light of the world? Are we just a reflection of something else going on in our world? You know, as we close out our message today, we're going to have an opportunity for us to actually share in communion together. And I think that this is important and such a powerful thing for us to do as we close because in communion, one of the things we're saying is that what unites us together as a people is that we have the same king. It's not about our political positions. It's not about our preferences. It's not about our favorite sports team or this or that. What brings us together is that we are citizens of the same king, a servant king who gave up his life for us. So today, as we have this time of communion, I want to encourage you to reflect again on Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight. Take a couple of minutes to thank God, or thank Jesus even, that, that he took on the very form of a servant and was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, to offer us new life. Take this time to wrestle through maybe areas of your life where you're not reflecting that same kind of love for others. Let's pray together, and then you're free to take communion when you like. Father, I thank you so much for being uh, an incredible God. God, I thank you for this picture of Jesus coming as this servant king, a king who laid down his life for us so that we may experience life, not just now, but for eternity. God, I pray right now that you would help us to be children of light, people that point to Jesus because that is who we are in light of what Christ has done for us. That's not something we've accomplished on our own. It's something you've accomplished for us. Thank you for your love and your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.